You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash earnings right now. NetSuite.com slash earnings. We can see that illuminated sign that marks the end of the journey. This vaccine will help us get past this pandemic once and for all. We need people to have faith that this vaccine is safe and that they should take it. The thing that's going to stop us from seeing the end of this pandemic are people going, oh, I'm not so sure. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Roger Hearing. And a very good afternoon. I'm Caroline Hepke. Now, it's been five years since Britain voted to exit the European Union, almost 200 days since the actual departure, belatedly, took place. Now, while the issue remains as divisive as ever, one of the thornier results, the Northern Ireland Protocol, may be a little bit closer to a resolution. UK and EU officials are now both sounding more optimistic about striking a temporary truce in what's been called the Sausage Wars. Mm -hmm, Yes. Meanwhile, the government is getting ready to free up international travel, it seems. Britons who have been fully vaccinated against coronavirus could be allowed to travel to more than 150 countries on the amber list, but then without the need to quarantine on their return to England. But it does look like the change would not come in until August, and officials say that the green list of safe destinations will stay small. Now, it's coming up to a week since that surprise victory of the Liberal Democrats in the Chesham and Amersham by-election. And it's refocused attention on some of the most controversial issues for this government. Many of the Tory voters who switched to the Lib Dems in that by-election mentioned the HS2 as an issue, the high-speed rail line connecting London with the North and the Midlands. Now, the cost of the project and the potential damage to the environment are, of course, major issues. Well, joining us now is someone who knows all about this, Tony Barclay, who's a Labour peer and was chair of the Rail Freight Group, the industry representative body for the rail freight sector. Uh, Tony, thanks so much for being with us today. Welcome to the programme. The cost of HS2 only seems to get higher. What's your view about the worthwhileness of this whole project, which, after all, is now underway? Well, thank you. Um, I'm, just to confirm, I'm no longer chairman of the Rail Freight Group. I, I retired a couple of years ago. But uh, on HS2, uh, I think it's a very serious problem because we've almost got a bottomless pit of money there. I think we're talking about $150 billion odd for the whole thing. But even more important, of course, is because of the coronavirus changes in people's ones wishing to travel... There's very few people who think that the demand for rail travel is going to ever go back to more than about 80% of what it was before the corona. And so you've got a new line being built 
probably in the wrong place, and we can talk about that. But um, being with a benefit-cost ratio, which is probably going to be below 0.5, which means for every pound you put in, you only get you only get 50p back. So it's not a good project when finances in this country are so stretched at the moment. Why has such a hash been made of HS2? Because, of course, the UK does need more infrastructure, better infrastructure. And as the government sort of promises um, big changes on climate change and green policy, I mean, rail does make sense. Yes, but rail makes great sense. But it's got to be the right rail. And there was a, a, a report in the media this week which said that the government finance for the Northern Powerhouse Rail, which is the local and regional services in the north, which is absolutely vital to the regeneration and the levelling up there, that finance may be cut in order to put it into the bottomless pit of HS2. So I think we have to debate whether it's more important to get important people to London from the regions, maybe once or twice a week, or to improve the commuting services in the regions so people have got more job opportunities and the less need to use the car. But Tony, isn't there a point where you say that the the cost of pulling out of something is almost more than uh, the cost of continuing with it, uh, given that we've gone so far down the line and so much has been put into this? Well, yes, um, that's an argument, but in fact... We haven't spent, the government hasn't spent anything more, um, about, about, I think it's about 10 billion so far, which is a lot of money, but it's a lot less than 150 billion. And the bits that are being built could still be used as a railway if people wanted them to, but let's not forget that they have not yet designed or gone out to tender or got approval for a station at Euston or Old Oak Common. And, um, it's pretty stupid to build a line without having a firm design for a station in London at one end. Yeah, that's on the rail issue. Um, Lord Barclay, I also want to talk to you today um, about Brexit, if I may, which I suppose... Um, you know, ha- has a relationship um, to issues around levelling up and, and transportation in the UK, you know, to do with the idea of global Britain. People, if anything, have only become more entrenched on their views around that Brexit vote five years ago today. How do you assess the impact of leaving the EU now? Well, I think it's early days to assess the long-term impact. I I was a, a member of the House of Lords um, uh Brexit committee for some time, which now been disbanded, and we're doing something else. But um, the evidence was that, apart from the problems at Dover and other ports, which are partly sorted out, the, the ongoing problems are to do with paperwork and, and some of these issues, which make it quite impossible for UK suppliers, manufacturers to export to the European Union in any economic sense. We have to forget that the, this trade should go both ways. And it's, equal, it's an equal problem for continental suppliers to be able to export to this country. And there's a number of suppliers I know who are just refusing to supply to this country. And it's fine to say that, OK, you, you produce things locally. 
But many things are actually produced mostly across Europe, or you get one supplier who does something and somebody else does something else. There's an awful lot of tra- traffic between the two, all of which needs sorting out. Now, we've, we've been debating fisheries and agriculture, and they are two very serious problems. There's also a problem of HGV drivers, because surprise, surprise, most I think it was 90% of the HGV drivers before the pandemic and before Brexit came from Eastern Europe. So many of them don't fancy coming here anymore for a variety of reasons, and now there's a real shortage of HGV drivers, which again reflects the lack of um, things in the shops sometimes, but it's, it actually is very bad for the economy of the country. Tony, let me move you on to another subject that I know you have strong views about, and which are, which is very current, of course, given we've got the Euro uh, football going on at the moment, uh, a lot of excitement about that. Um, but a lot of the rules for football, for football supporters, the concern about the numbers who are going to congregate in Wembley soon, uh, a comparison with what happens with musicians, where the rules seem to be rather different. Just take us through that. I think it's really serious that music. I mean, I love love going to music music events, and um, I think it's really serious that football is allowed to congregate en masse, and and musicians are not. And I think there needs to be some real consistency about government policy and a bit of a more more of a long term view because. These things all take a really long time to organise with a lot of financial risk attached to them. And if we don't get some kind of consistency, then they're all going to go to the wall. And the evidence of people congregating in large numbers in the open air is that the risk, I think, is pretty small. It's very much smaller than being inside. And um, I, I just think the government needs to look at all these things in a consistent and fair way, rather than sort of saying, well, football's popular, so let's give that a special a special case. That's not the way to, to organise these things at all. So what is your view then uh, on that? One of the issues has been about those football fans, but also, you know, others. Travelling, international travel, we're expecting a decision from the government. Do you think it is wise to open up international travel without having to quarantine so that families, perhaps during the summer holidays from school, can go abroad? Well, I think I think people booking holidays like that going abroad this summer... Uh, I'm not going to, and uh, I, I think you've got to risk, uh, take the risk of either having to isolate or having to pay up fares or deposits that you haven't got back, because the government alongside this is um, not doing much to support the customer um, who's paid a, an airfare or bought a holiday let and then finds that the government regulation means that you can't go and um, I think that's very far the competition the markets authority have been looking into this but it's um, it's still very uncertain and uh, I get the impression again there needs to be a consistent policy on this rather than saying oh, the company is saying oh they're, we're a bit short of money so we're not going to refund the uh, affairs we're going to we're going to give you a credit there has to be consistency about this. You either can go or you can't go. And having been allowed to go, I think you've got to be allowed to come back. Uh, and Tony, very, very briefly, you do push on the refunds issue because this is absolutely central for people. That's the thing that needs to be addressed. Sorry? 
the refunds issue, people getting refunds when they've yeah. paid for their holidays? Well, I think, I think if, to me, it's quite simple. If somebody has booked a travel or accommodation and that is legal, they're legally allowed to travel when they book. If the government changes a law that says, actually, you can't travel because we've changed the law, then yeah. the government should pay. Okay, it, that... you know, it, it isn't actually a debate between the, the buyer and the seller. It's the government if it changes time, its law. Time, That's yeah. a standard practice. You know me? Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. But let's have a look at what else is making news in the world of politics. And Caroline, there's a little bit of an idea about when this referendum on Scotland might happen. Yes, Indy Ref 2. So the Cabinet Office Minister Michael Gove says that Boris Johnson will not grant a new referendum on Scottish independence before the next general election, which isn't due until 2024. Gove is, of course, responsible for countering Scotland's push for independence. His comments appear to go further than other ministers who've said that this is the wrong time for another referendum. Well, officials here are going to go easy on firms struggling with unpaid taxes accrued during the pandemic. The business secretary, Kwasi Kwarteng, said the government will take a cautious approach and will be flexible as long as businesses engage with the HMRC. Lobby groups had warned that many firms would struggle to repay their debts when virus-related government support begins to end. And, Roger, there's been something of a row over the Department for Education encouraging children to mark a One Britain, One Nation Day on Friday by singing a song with the chorus Strong Britain, Great Nation. The day is actually a private initiative by the One Britain, One Nation campaign, which is led by a former policeman uh, who says that its aim is to create a strong, fair, harmonious and proud British nation, celebrating patriotism and respect for all our people. Well, the Education Secretary, Gavin Williamson, has given the campaign his backing. It's also got supporters, including the actor Joanna Lumley, MP Brandon Lewis, and the former MPs David Steele and Norman Tebbit. But there has been widespread criticism, some likening the move to something in North Korea. And Scottish and Welsh politicians have complained that actually the UK is made up of several nations, not just one. Yes, I wonder whether uh, any children will be singing that song. This blew up, didn't it, on Twitter with uh, yeah, it, a lot of jokes, let's put it that way. 
Yeah, well, let's talk now about other issues. Well, one issue is very much not a joke, and that is, of course, what's going on with Northern Ireland. And, of course, in the background of what the talks going on today with the EU, considering what's going to happen with the protocol, there is some very, uh, let's say, difficult politics in Northern Ireland, and not least the fact that it's gone through a fairly large number of leaders of the main party, the DUP. Joining us now is Bloomberg Opinion columnist Therese Raphael. Thanks for being with us, Therese. Let's talk about Northern Ireland first, because uh, uh, even in the time you've just been away, even the time you've been away, I think there have been several changes at the top of the DUP, hard to keep up with. But what does it tell us about what's happening in Northern Ireland? Well, it tells us, I think, first of all, that the unionist um, side in Northern Ireland is absolutely determined that uh, the promises that it says it was made by the UK government and by Boris Johnson will be kept. And that means, you know, quite simply, that the Northern Ireland Protocol, as uh, as it was written and as the EU uh, is saying it must be enforced, uh, uh, must change or, um, or, or the UK must uh, simply suspend its uh, plans for implementing it. And so even though we have a new DUP leader coming in, Evan Boots is now out in a very brief amount of time, I don't think that changes the dynamics. Um, in, in, in some ways, um, it makes it you know, even more likely that the UK government is, is going to have to find a way uh, to get the EU to agree to either an extension or some more permanent change to the protocol, which is what uh, Boris Johnson seems to be wanting here. Yeah, and the EU side has so far been completely reluctant to do that. Um, uh, although there does seem to be perhaps the idea of of another extension. I mean, there was already an extension for six months. Um, this is becoming incredibly fraught and, and, and could become even more so over the summer. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I, th- I think the hard thing for the EU is that while they are completely uh, you know, within their right to... Uh, you know, make the argument that this is what Boris Johnson agreed to, this is a deal, it's on paper, it's a contract, it's a treaty, and all of those things. The politics uh, works much more in Johnson's favor, because in the end, he has to simply stand up and say, well, isn't it absurd that, you know, sausages can't go from uh, from England into Northern Ireland, and what other country has such an arrangement? And at, at home, you know, people nod in agreement, uh, and so that you know that makes it very awkward for the EU to say yes, but you've agreed to that. And he says, well, you know, the agreement is flawed, and and if the agreement is flawed, and if it's undermining the peace in Northern Ireland, which we you know both sides agreed was the purpose of the protocol, then uh, or part of the purpose of the protocol, the other part being to protect the single market then Johnson's argument is things have to change and the EU simply applying uh, the rules too rigidly. And it's a, it's a hard one for the EU uh, to come back on. What it will have to decide is just how, uh, how long to give an ex- an, uh, of an extension to give and what happens after that. You know, is there a, a, a legal uh, a pursuit of legal uh, redress? Are there trade sanctions? Um, I think one thing is very clear, and that is that it is going to infect other parts of the UK-EU relationship, because how can uh, the two sides agree on any of a number of trade-related issues without this question coming up, well, what, you know, what happens if you change your mind once the ink is dry? And that all seems extraordinary in a way. I mean, talking of extensions, this whole thing is an extension of something that started five years ago. Uh, and, and then, I mean, 
did we really think there was still going to be discussions going on and all this trouble? It does seem extraordinary that it extends <laughs> and long as far as it has and affects so much also in politics. Yeah, I mean, Brexit was just such a... We, we've said it so many times and we've probably talked ourselves uh, uh, blue in the face about it, but it, you know, has just, you know, was such a historic um, decision that the country made or stumbled into, and it changes so much. And, you know, I guess if we were to ask, you know, is this the Brexit that people wanted? Is, is Has it turned out the way people thought it would? Um, I think we find that those who voted for it are, you know, more or less happy about it. Those who didn't are more or less unhappy about it. Lots of people feel it hasn't changed too much. But, um, I, you know, I think we'll see many of the effects just um, become more apparent over time. And that was so where the, you know, those who opposed Brexit were, were you know, wrong. And a lot of their initial analysis was that the changes that Brexit would bring about were not necessarily you know, big, sudden, cataclysmic ones, um, but, uh, you know, shifts in direction and policy and degree, um, effects on the pound, effects on trade, effects on property markets, the job market, immigration, all those things kind of happen um, uh, over time. And I think that's mm-hmm. what we'll begin to see. We've, we've not been out more than, I think, 200 days now. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, the pandemic has clouded things um, in terms of the impact of Brexit. Um, Speaking of which, on to another topic, Um, Morgan Stanley requiring vaccinations to go into the office in the US, but wanting people back. Do you think that that is where things are heading? I mean, I haven't heard of um, this obligation in the UK other than for care home staff, but there's going to be a real dilemma there, isn't there? Yeah, it's interesting that Morgan Stanley has taken that move, although they're not, I think, the only or the first. I think Blackstone, Goldman Sachs have both um, have both made similar policies. I think it's a little bit easier in the U.S. Remember, the AstraZeneca vaccine is not uh, there, and so there's not been these questions about, you know, blood clots and effectiveness. Um, and, you know, and I, and I think Americans are likely to take the view, look, these are private companies, they can... You know, they can set policies as they like. I think in Britain, it's, it's more complicated. It's much more tied up uh, with, uh, with, you know, questions of liberty. And there are, you know, genuine questions around how do you, you know, h- how do you make compulsory um, uh, a vaccine that, you know, was, was really approved in very short order? Um, you know, there were the blood clot issues that, you know that that some might reasonably be worried about who are of that age and and would be working, um, you know, for these banks. So I, I I have a feeling that it would be they would proceed with a lot more caution in the UK, um, and it would be you know we might see more kind of official involvement if that if if that were the case. But clearly firms are trying find a way to solve the elevator problem. You know they they want mm-hmm. to get rid of masking, they want to get rid of social distancing, and and. Telling workers, look, if you vaccinate, you know, you're free to come in and, and dispense with those things. If you're not double, you know, double vaxxed, um, please stay home is one way to do that. Yeah, it's one way, I suppose, of, of getting to the point almost also, which some firms seem to be wanting almost, is for yeah. people to work from home far more. Well, if it's a complication, I guess, about how you get in, if you've been jabbed and that sort of thing, I suppose that's almost a mechanism to achieve the end they might probably want anyway. 
Sure. I mean, I think other firms want their employees back in the office, particularly in the financial services industry. Um, so they, they'd like both things. They'd like people to be double vaxxed and get back into the office. I think that that's where the problem arises, where there is compulsory um, attendance, you know, to the office and the requirement that you be doubly vaccinated. What happens for people who, you know, for one reason or another, uh, decided not to get vaccinated, you know, are their jobs at risk? Um, I, I suspect some financial services firms will say, you know, we're not the place for you then. But um, that, that raises all sorts of questions that will probably yeah. end up in the court. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.